Thank you, Ian. Well, it's really nice to be with you. Really, really nice to be with you. It's been such an encouragement for us up at Oak Hall to have you guys coming and uh, worshiping God up at the Garden Stage. It's been fantastic. So thank you so much for coming up. It's blessed us. It's encouraged us. And it's a privilege to be with you in your building this afternoon. Not quite as nice as the Garden Stage on a sunny day, but it's still very nice uh, to be with you. I, as Ian said, I serve as part of the team at Oak Hall, and my particular responsibility within the team is trying to make sure that we have good Bible teachers on the holidays and expeditions that we run around the world. And um, the problem is that it's a role that kind of rewards failure. It rewards failure, because if I fail in my job, if I don't get it right, then I have to head off to some sort of glamorous location and teach the Bible to people. So it's a bit of a, it's, it's a little bit of a rewarding failure sort of role. And one time I could not find anyone, anyone at all, to speak on the Southern Africa safari. So I had to go, uh, which was really rough, really hard. And, uh, but I went and uh, it was brilliant, it was amazing. Uh, I felt like Biggles, there was like lion dung in the camp in the morning, camping in the Okavango Delta in Botswana. It was amazing, it was absolutely amazing. But the only problem was that we flew with Air France and we had a bit of a tight transfer um, through uh, Paris um, Charles de Gaulle Airport. And one of the guests was a bit nervous. They were saying, you know, it's really, really tight. It's only a few minutes. And uh, we, we made it, we made it to the plane. They were saying, but what about our bags? And I was saying, don't worry, you know, uh, French baggage handlers, they're the best in the world. It's all going to be fine. And uh, we arrived there and uh, we were standing there by the conveyor belt as it was going around. And this guest was very concerned. Was their luggage coming? Was their luggage coming? And uh, eventually, right at the end, their luggage appeared. And I breathed the gates, great sigh of relief. All the guests had their luggage, but I didn't have mine. I suddenly realized I didn't have mine. And I'd made a rookie error. I'd preached my, I, I'd packed my sermon notes in my luggage. And so I had no sermon notes for 15 um, days of teaching. And so the group basically got Paul Mayo's favorite passages. And uh, one of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the, uh, Paul says, let us always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And he explains that, you know, if this world was all there was, then it would make sense to get everything that we can out of life now. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, if this world is all there is. But he says, don't, because there's a resurrection coming. And um, in light of that, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And so in my introduction, I said, you know, if this life is all we've got, then we've got to get all we can. So let's throw ourselves um, into it, suck the hedonistic marrow out of life and uh, not serve. But then I said, but no, no, there is a resurrection. So don't, you know, actually give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. At the end of it, a girl came up to me and she said, Paul, I found that very, very helpful. And, you know, as a preacher, that's what you want to hear. I was like, brilliant. She said, I realize that I've been giving myself too much to the work of the Lord. I've been serving too much in my church. I've been giving too much to mission agencies. And really, you know, I, this life, we're going to die. Let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. I need to get more out of this life now. And basically, she had fallen asleep at the end of my introduction and gone home with exactly the opposite of what I'd been saying. And I felt brutally discouraged by that. Feels a bit silly looking back at it. It was just uh, one occasion, but I felt brutally discouraged by it. And I do feel discouraged quite often. And at the moment, it feels like there's quite a lot to be discouraged about, doesn't it? I mean, being part of the team, trying to organize people to go on group holidays during a pandemic internationally, it's been a bit of a discouraging 15 months. Um, but I kind of hoped that 
my friends that I've been praying for for a decade, that this pandemic would be a wake up call to them. And there was a moment of seriousness amongst them at the start of the pandemic. And I thought maybe this is when I'm going to see them come to know Jesus. But now they're getting back into life and everything's carrying on as normal. And it doesn't really feel like anything's particularly changed. But the biggest thing that gets me discouraged is me. Um, last week, I met up with a friend and we uh, were talking about, you know, last 20 years, we were at university together. Uh, when we were 20, now we're 40. And he was saying, how are you doing, Paul? And I was like, basically, I kind of thought that by the time I was 40, I would be quite a lot like my holy, humble, servant-hearted king. But I'm basically still just a proud, selfish narcissist. And that is the thing that discourages me most. My growth in Christ-likeness is so agonizingly slow, so frustrating. All these things leave me feeling very discouraged at times. And at times like that, I turn to the book of Isaiah, and I turn to chapters 40 to 55, because they are very precious chapters to me. They're very precious, because in them, God's people faced one of the most discouraging situations that God's people have ever faced. Um, it was a time when they had been betraying God so intensely, sacrificing their children to idols, that God said, fine, your future is exile. You're off to Babylon. You want to be like the Babylonians? You can go off to Babylon. Uh, your future is going to be digging irrigation canals in the Iraqi desert. That's what's coming for you. And you think, how on earth do God's people carry on being faithful during that time? Once they've been deported, once they're serving the king of Babylon, how do they keep on going? But God gives them the fuel to do that in chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah. And he does a few things, but in particular, he gives them four amazing poems. Um, chapter um, 42, uh, 49, 50, 53. Four amazing poems that give them a glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus. And um, in 42 and 53, we hear the Father describing the glory of the Son. But in chapter 49, in some ways it's even more intimate. We get to overhear the internal monologue of the Son 700 years before he came. It's a quite remarkable passage, and that's what I'd like to read to you uh, this afternoon. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of, it, those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you 
a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So Jesus starts off by explaining why it is that the whole world should listen to him. Do you see that in verse 1? Why is it that the whole world should listen to him? Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Why? Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Now that makes us think of Jeremiah 1 verse 5, doesn't it? Where God says a very similar thing to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1 verse 5, because before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, when we overhear God saying that to Jeremiah, what we realize is that Jeremiah is not just some random bloke who turned out to be a good communicator. Jeremiah is God's chosen means of speaking to Israel in that generation and in that moment. And so you can't ignore Jeremiah. You must listen to him. Well, if that's true of Jeremiah, how much more true is it true of the Lord Jesus? Look at, what, um, look what it says here. Before I was born, the Lord called me. Before the world was created, it was always the plan that Jesus would enter the world and die for us, that we might be saved. Before the world was made, it was God's plan that we would be reconciled to him through the Son. He has made mention of my name from my mother's womb. When Mary is pregnant with Jesus, Gabriel appears to her and, and, and names him, tells her what she must name him. When Jesus is in Mary's womb, John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb and Elizabeth realizes, wow, the mother of my Lord has come to visit me. Jesus is not simply a good communicator. He is God's chosen means of speaking to us. He is God's weapon of choice. We cannot ignore Jesus. This is the way that God has chosen to speak to the world through Jesus. And, and, and Jesus isn't just a chosen communicator, though. He is a powerful communicator. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Some people speak truth, but you can kind of keep it at arm's length. Do you know what I mean? And it feels a bit irrelevant and you could ignore it, but not Jesus. His mouth, the words that come out, are like a sharp sword. Picture a big broadsword with an edge as sharp as a razor. That is what the impact of the words of Jesus are like. That's what we see in his ministry, isn't it? He, he, he goes around, and as he does, he speaks words and lives are changed. Here's a few fishermen who have invested all of their money in this project to a boat together. And yet Jesus walks past and says, come, follow me. And Peter and Andrew, leave it all behind and follow him. Here's a man who's worshipped money all his life, cares nothing about people. He is a chief tax collector. He's corrupt. He, he makes money by taking it off those who, who can't fight back against him. And he's amassed a vast amount of wealth that way because he doesn't care about people. He only cares about money. But then Zacchaeus has lunch with Jesus. And suddenly he's saying, I'm giving my money away to the poor. And, and I'm, I'm paying back those that I've cheated four times. His life is transformed by a conversation with Jesus. 
Well, think of the nice, respectable town of Nazareth, where Jesus has grown up, and yet when he preaches there, suddenly their hypocrisy is revealed, and they go from approving him at the start of the meeting to wanting to throw him off a cliff at the end. This is the impact of the words of Jesus. They come with the precision of a surgeon's scalpel and the force of an artillery round. That is the words of Jesus. Look at the second image in verse 2. He made me into a polished arrow. If you go up to the British Museum in Bloomsbury, you can see um, Assyrian soldiers with their polished arrows in some of the wall carvings. They used to polish them to make them fly more straight and true. And, and you can see them in the British Museum, and they are hunting. And what they are hunting is lions. Imagine that, hunting a lion with a bow and arrow. But their polished arrows have so much force, that they crack through uh, the lions, and they crack open their skulls, and they, they kill the lions. These are the pictures that are being made at the time that Isaiah is speaking these words. And that is the image of the power of the words of Jesus, sufficient to crack open the thick skull of a lion, like a polished arrow. And that is deeply encouraging, isn't it? Because I'm often asking myself, is it worthwhile what I'm doing? Is it worthwhile? Well, if what I am doing is getting people to the words of Jesus, then it is worthwhile. Because Jesus' words, it's God's chosen means to change people, and it's an incredibly powerful way to change people. I think of my friends, what is going to be powerful enough to crack through their thick skulls and get their attention and change them? It's the words of Jesus, like a, a polished arrow. I think of myself. My skull feels pretty thick sometimes. My heart feels pretty hard. But what is it that can crack through it? It's the words of Jesus, like a polished arrow breaking into our lives. That is what we need. This is why it's worth making time for Connect Group this week. This is why it's worth making time to read God's word this week. This is why it's worth sitting down with your Christian friend who is struggling and, and reading the Bible with them, sharing verses with them. Because all of this, all of this book, it's the words of Jesus, breathed out by his spirit. It has power to change. Like a polished arrow, like a sharp sword. Jesus is God's weapon of choice. And as a result, look at verse 3. He is the theater of God's glory. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. What was the purpose of the nation of Israel? The purpose of the nation of Israel was to show God's glory to the nations round about. So they would be sucked in and they would say, wow, that is the sort of God we want. A God who is close to them, a God who answers prayer, a God who gives them wise laws. That's the sort of God we want. And they would be drawn in to worship the one true God at the temple. That was the point of the nation of Israel. Did they succeed? No. Isaiah 42, second half, tells us that they failed. They only brought disgrace to God. But Jesus, he comes to be the true, perfect Israel, the one who fully reveals God's glory. So that Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus replies, Philip, haven't you seen me? If you've met me, you have met the Father. He reveals God's glory perfectly, absolutely, truly. And that means that he is just what I need. Because my biggest problem, and my friend's biggest problem, is that we are drunk on trivialities. We are wasting our life on stuff that doesn't really matter. 
Our hearts and our minds are full of weightless, insignificant things that somehow feel deeply weighty and important, but they're not. So what I need is something that is truly weighty, something that is truly glorious to fill my heart, fix my attention on. Where will I see that? I will see that in the face of Christ. And so if what I'm doing is trying to fix my eyes on Jesus, if what I'm doing is trying to fix my friend's eyes on Jesus, if what I'm doing is trying to model his character in the way that I interact with my non-Christian friends and colleagues and neighbors, is it a waste of time? No, because it's in showing people Jesus they will see God's glory. He is the theater, the demonstration of God's glory. He is God's weapon of choice. This is where we see what God is like, which makes verse 4 absolutely shocking. Look at verse 4. I think it might be up on the screen. Look at verse 4. Jesus is God's weapon of choice, yes. But look at verse 4. Look what he says. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Now, I know what that verse feels like. I remember one of our ski holidays in Lauterbrunn where I was preaching, and every night there were less and less people coming to the meetings, and I remember feeling like I had a bin bag on my head as I was preaching, and none of my words were getting beyond the first row and being a Christian meeting. There was no one sitting in the first row, so it was a complete waste of time. I remember sitting on the washing machines at 2 o'clock in the morning thinking I would rather be anywhere but here. This is an utter waste of time. I'm spending my strength in vain and for nothing. And the Old Testament prophets, they knew what that felt like. Imagine Jeremiah sitting there in the cistern under Jerusalem as he hears the Babylonians invading, setting fire to the city, the city that he has preached to for a lifetime, calling them to repent, to avoid this disaster, but they've ignored him and now his city is on fire as he's stuck in a cistern. I spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Think of the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians. Galatians 4 verse 11, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, they knew what this felt like. We know what it feels like. But did Jesus, God in skin on earth, know what this feels like? Because that feels extreme to me to say that. And actually Isaiah 42 in our translations says that he will not falter or be discouraged. So how can this be Jesus? But, and for a long time that made me think this passage can't be about Jesus. But it clearly is about Jesus. Look at verse 7. He's the one who is rightly worshipped by kings. Look at verse 6. He's the one who is a light for the Gentiles and the ends of the earth. He's the one, verse 5, who gathers Israel to himself. We've already seen verse 3. He's the theater of God's glory. Verse 2, he's the one with uniquely powerful words. He's the one who's called before he's born. And, of course, he is the servant who Isaiah clearly identifies and the New Testament authors clearly understand to be our Lord Jesus. This is the Lord Jesus that we are reading about in these verses. And he knows what it is like to say, I have spent my strength, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing at all. And actually when I think about it, this is not so surprising. Because the person we meet in the Gospels is clearly 100% God, but he is equally clearly 100% man. So he's clearly God. He stands by a friend's grave and he says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus walks out. That is not a normal human thing to be doing. He has God's authority even over death. 
But what was he doing moments before, before he, he called Lazarus out? He was weeping by his friend's grave, mourning the death of his friend, experiencing true human emotion. He's clearly God. You know, he, he stands up in a little boat on a big lake and in a big storm, and he says, quiet, be still. And the winds and the waves do as he says, because he's God, he's their creator. They have to do what he says. But what was he doing moments before, before he stood up in the boat? He was sleeping because he was human. He was tired. As he hung there on the cross, clearly this is no ordinary man who is dying. The sky goes dark. The earth shakes. The temple in the curtain tears in two. This is no ordinary man who is dying. And yet he is dying. He is a man. He is thirsty. Because he is a man with a human body, a human mind, human emotions. And with that human body, human mind, human emotions, he goes through some of the most intensely discouraging situations someone could ever face. Think through his life in the Gospels. Think through some of the situations that he faced. Think about what it was like for him to be preaching and his mum turn up to take him home with his brothers because they think he's had too much sun and he's gone a bit crazy. Can you imagine that if my mum walks in now, Paul, you need to come home, he's gone a little bit crazy. Uh, he, he invests deeply in 12 people and they don't understand what he's talking about at any point. They, they, they keep on thinking that he's talking about glory and wealth and honour, even as he talks about sacrifice and service and laying your life down. And then one of them betrays him. Imagine what it must have been like for him standing there in that hot courtyard as the sun has come up after a night of show trials where he's been punched in the face, mocked, where he's beaten, where his blood covers the floor of the courtyard. And, and, and he knows he's only there because one of his closest friends said, I'd rather have money than you. The rest of his friends ran away. The boldest one followed for a while, but then denied that he knew him. And outside, the crowd are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, kill him in the most painful way you possibly can, because we detest him and we have no time for him. At that moment, on Good Friday, Jesus looks like the most extreme failure there has ever been. More of a failure than the Apostle Paul ever looked. More of a failure than Jeremiah ever looked. Most extreme failure there has ever been. So it appears. He knows what it is like to say, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. There is no apparent fruit on that day. And I find that very, very encouraging. Very encouraging. Firstly, because it means that the battle in itself is not sinful. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get discouraged, and then I get discouraged that I'm discouraged, if that makes sense. And, and, I, and the battle brings me down. I remember uh, one day when I was um, at university, 20 years ago now, um, and I was walking into university and I was coming from a group of friends who I've been trying to tell about Jesus, but they thought I was silly. I was on my way to a tutorial with um, a tutor who was going to laugh at me for believing that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God. And, um, and that evening I was going to be staying on for a Christian union that was splitting itself apart over issues that didn't really matter. And we had a whole thousands of people at the university that didn't know Jesus. So I was feeling pretty discouraged as I walked into university. And then I looked across the road, and there was a man walking on the other side of the road who I, 
I, well, I, I knew in the sense that I knew about him. I'd read his books, I'd heard him preach, I'd seen the impact that his ministry had had. We'd never met, we still haven't. Um, and he was walking along um, like this, looking worse than I felt. And that really cheered me up. That really encouraged me. Because I thought if he's allowed to feel like that, then I'm allowed to feel like this. The battle in itself is not sinful. And the fact that Jesus battled apparent fruitlessness is encouraging to me. The battle is not in itself sinful. But secondly, it's encouraging because it means that as I come to speak to Jesus, I speak to someone that understands. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of talking to someone about something that really hurts. I don't know what, a, a breakup, a bereavement, some ongoing battle with sin. And as you're speaking to them, they're saying, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. I get it. Yeah, totally, totally. Mm, yeah. And, and as they're speaking and talking to you, you're realizing you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Everything about your body language, everything about the advice you're giving me tells me you don't have a clue what I am talking about. And then I hope you've had the experience of going to speak to someone else. As you speak to them, it's clear they do understand what you're talking about. The advice they give is helpful. Um, and gradually you realize why. It's because they have been where you now are. And so they get it. They have walked in your shoes. And so it's easy to talk to them about this pain. Well, Jesus is like that. When we speak to him, we speak to a great high priest who understands, who has been where we are. And that thirdly means that we can imitate him. We can walk in his footsteps and go the way that he went. Because notice what Jesus does. It's not just the first half of verse 4, it's the second half. But I said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet, what is due to me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. Jesus knows that Good Friday is not Judgment Day. Jesus knows that after Good Friday will soon come Easter Sunday. As he stands there being mocked by the crowds, beaten by the soldiers. Yet, in a couple of days' time, he is going to be lifted up, raised, lifted up, seated in glory, far above all powers and authorities and any name that can be given. His triumph is coming. Good Friday is not Judgment Day. And today, for us, is not Judgment Day. On Good Friday, it looked like Jesus' mission failed. Today, it may sometimes look like our mission has failed. But today is not Judgment Day. Today is not the day when we see what our lives are worth. That day is coming. That is when we will see the fruit and the meaning of our lives on Judgment Day. And on Judgment Day, we will see fruit. We will see our rewards. My reward is with my God. I know that on Judgment Day, there will be people there who, who you are shocked to find that they are your crown, your joy, your reward on Judgment Day. As, uh, as you see the picture of their life and you realize that it was your example 20 years beforehand at work that led to them coming to know Jesus. It was your friendship, your taking them out for a pizza when they were down that kept them persevering and following Christ until the end. It was your generous giving that led to someone taking the gospel to their nation and, and then being reached. And now there they are on Judgment Day as your crown, your reward, your joy. 
That will happen. And I know that will happen. And these aren't just cheery words because of verses 5 to 7. Verses 5 to 7 tell us that Jesus will triumph worldwide. This is absolutely certain. Look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. God, God formed Jesus to save Israel, but now God says, verse 6, I want to do more. Verse 6, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. It's too small a thing, God says, too small a thing for you to save just one nation, Jesus. I want you to save the world, to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Why does God want this? Well, verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. So the one who's been hated and pushed down, Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Even the most powerful in the world will end up bowing before Jesus. Why? Because the Lord has chosen him. Because the Lord is determined that he will be honored by an uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And this is why it is absolutely certain what we are investing our lives in. I had the privilege of training at a, a preaching course with them um, at one point. And um, a, a chap, the chap who was leading it came in one day and um, said he had a slightly discouraging evening with his neighbors. Uh, they'd invited them around to get to know them, and their neighbor had a fairly high-powered sort of job and uh, was full of the importance of his role. And then after a while talking about it said, and what about you? What do you do? He said, oh, I, 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 I train people to teach the Bible. And he said, how interesting. Does anyone come? And he said, yeah, yeah, no, we've got about, about 100, um, 100 young people in their 20s and 30s who are, who are training to teach the Bible more effectively with us for a year. Uh, and he said, how interesting that they would choose to give their lives to a dying cause, to a dying cause. That is how the world sees the church something dying and fading and irrelevant god's kingdom fading away but it is utterly mistaken values investments in this world their value may go down as well as up and in the end they will all burn but investments in god's kingdom that is the one thing we can be certain about treasures in heaven are the one thing that is utterly secure because God is absolutely committed to this project. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. God is absolutely committed to seeing people honor Jesus forever. So tomorrow morning, as your alarm clock rings, and you think, shall I get up for my quiet time, or shall I hit the snooze button? On whatever night it is this week, as your connect group rolls around, you're thinking, do I really want to log on to Zoom again? Remember, Jesus is God's weapon of choice. His words are powerful. It will not be wasted time to spend time in his words. He will change you. He will transform you. He will transform the others that are there. It is 
worth it. This week, as you're sitting down for a meal with your family and you think, shall we read the Bible together? It doesn't really feel like they ever actually engage with it. Um, or as you're preparing for Sunday school and you think I've been teaching this for a few years now, but they're still little horrors and we're not getting anywhere. Well, remember, apparent fruitlessness, that is, that is part of following the Lord, walking in the way of Jesus in this life. As you go into work tomorrow and you think, shall I let my colleagues know that I'm a Christian? My last workplace I tried and it never led to anything. Is that relative that you've been praying for for decades and yet see no flicker of interest in the gospel? Is it worth it? Is this just a dying cause? No. This is worth it. The Father has chosen the Son that people from every background will honor him. That princes will see him. Kings will see him and bow down and rise in his presence because he is the Lord of all and the Father is committed to seeing him glorified. This is what it is worth us giving ourselves fully to. Let us always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor is not in vain. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he is glorious. We thank you that he understands our struggles. We thank you that he is your chosen way to reveal your glory to your world. Help us, we pray. Help us to be bold in giving our lives for his service, taking up our cross and following him, and listening to you in your word attentively. We ask these things for the honor of the Lord Jesus and because we dare approach you in his name. Amen.